You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, you are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for Conscious Living. My name is Dawn. Today, we'll get started with an article published in Simplify Magazine titled, No More Impulse Buying, The Magic of Mindful Curation by Tara Button. My mother says that when I was a child, it didn't matter how much pocket money I was given. Mysteriously, by the end of the month, I had none. It evaporated like leprechaun gold. If I wanted something, I needed it. I didn't really know the difference between want and need. Pretty pencil cases and magazines with enticing plastic free gifts were my kryptonite. I was also powerless under the slightest pressure from salespeople. Aged eight, I spent three weeks allowance on an expensive oat soap I didn't want just to avoid disappointing the smiley saleswoman at the market stall. It sat in my bathroom melting its patty puddles and making me feel resentful for months. As I grew, the spending grew too. Aged 19, I was given a $1,500 inheritance, the biggest sum of money in my life so far. Naturally, I spent it, all of it, on the first thing I came across, a treadmill. Each run on that treadmill cost me around $100. In my late 20s, my impulse buying tendency graduated from a quirky habit to a serious problem. Twice, I managed to rack up thousands of dollars in credit card debt. The first time, family loaned me money to pay off the balance. The second time, I was so ashamed, I told no one and instead paid the debt back slowly and painfully over months of self-flagellation and cheap pasta meals. I think I always expected when I grew up, I would just naturally become less impulsive with money. Like there might be a magical night class that happens in our sleep when we're on the cusp of having to really be an adult. I never got access to those night classes, but something magical did happen to me when I was 30 that changed my spending habits forever. I was given a cooking pot. It was a beautiful, lifetime-guaranteed Le Croisette casserole pot, the kind of thing you pass down to your grandchildren. As I started to use it and appreciate it, I was overcome with the feeling that I wanted everything I bought from now on to be like this to have the potential to be a permanent fixture in my life. So I went looking for a shop that only stuck the longest lasting things in the world. When I found out that such a thing didn't exist, I was so surprised and so sure that it was something the world needed, I created the shop myself. The creation of my business, Buy Me Once, and my new philosophy on how to buy came hand in hand. The more I researched long-lasting products, the more obvious the benefits of long-term buying became. You save money in the long term, you're more likely to pick things you really like. You're more likely to take care of them, and it's better for the environment. Also, asking ourselves, is this something I want to be in my life forever, automatically gets us thinking, what do I want my life to be? The process of buying for life insists that you get to know yourself, and that in itself is transformative. In the book I've now written on the subject, A Life Less Throwaway, I call my buying philosophy mindful curation. It is the opposite of mindless buying. And like an art curator, you pick each individual piece that you want to bring into the space, but you also have in mind what you want the whole collection to mean when it's put together. 
None of this, however, means that my impulse buying urges evaporated. These were baked in habits and the world was still just as determined to get me to spend. Putting mindful curation into practice in my own life was the first time I truly realized what we're up against. Mindful long-term buying is not how the commercial world wants us to spend. And this world has all the tricks and magic spells to make us slip up and slip out our credit cards at the same time. It was time to come up with some counter curses. Lesson one, defense against the dark arts of advertising. If we want to buy things on our own terms, we can't be dictated to by advertising. I worked in advertising for 10 years, so I've seen all their spells. Ads are charms designed to whisper directly to your subconscious. Look how happy you could be if you only had this. These spells are designed to bypass the bit that might think, actually, this might be a bit of a fad. Most of us are completely convinced that we don't really pay ads any attention. But research has found that people exposed to the most ads, even if they think they are not affected, are more likely to be in debt and work longer hours to pay for all the extra things they buy. So what to do? The counter curse. First, cut down the number of ads you see by getting ad blockers, muting the TV during ad breaks, and considering paying for ad-free content. You'll then be left with fewer spells to fight. Next, Face any ads you see in magazines and billboards head on. Don't ignore them because your subconscious has already seen them and is being lured in. Look them in the eye and tell them firmly but politely, no thank you, I have everything I need to be happy. Lesson two, unfog your fashion future. Trends and fads in fashion and decor are jinxes that exist to make us spend. These spells tell us, that we need to refresh our look, that our couch is too 90s, that our shoes are too last season. They are able to manipulate us in this way because so few of us have ever taken the time to figure out what style is actually right for us. The counter curse. The only way to fight the fads and get off the trend treadmill is to find your true taste. This spell takes a couple of days to brew, but it's a powerful one. Spend a weekend discovering the colors that are your colors. Go to the biggest store you can find and hold every color fabric against your face and see which ones bring your eyes alive. Write down your own recipe for the perfect fashion potion. Which textures, which patterns, which shapes, lengths, and fabrics feel good against your skin and create a look that you can see yourself wearing for the next decade. When you've found the right look for you, get the highest quality version you can afford. Now, when you open your wardrobe, instead of feeling you have so many clothes and nothing to wear, you'll be greeted with a selection of options, all of which make you feel fantastic. Go through the same process with decor, but instead of going to a store, create mood boards on Pinterest. The first board should just be about color, the second textures and pattern, then furniture eras and styles, then accessories. Don't buy anything new for your home, without referring to the mood boards first. If you feel your taste shifting, ask yourself, is this being driven by an outside trend or is this rooted in my long-term taste? Lesson three, transfigure your shopping list. Many of us have a vague list, probably not written down, of stuff we want. The world constantly encourages to focus on this list. Instagram, Facebook, ads, family and friends are just walking down the street, 
can create a litany of desires in our hearts. The human condition, it seems, is to constantly desire more, get more, and then immediately want more than that. The counter curse. Instead of writing a list of the things you need, write a list of the things I do not need. When I did this, my list included baking equipment, snazzy notebooks, gym gadgets, and electronics. Write your own detailed list for every room in your house. I didn't realize what a powerful counter curse this was until I shared my list online and people started to write their own similar lists. One impulse shopper wrote to me, I had no idea how powerful this list would become. As someone that has battled for years with compulsive spending, mostly to comfort myself when I'm feeling insecure or overwhelmed, this has been beyond liberating. When I start to think I should go shopping, I can pull out this list and see how there really is nothing that I need. And suddenly those feelings of being overwhelmed become feelings of gratitude for all that I have. In short, it has and will hopefully continue to be life-changing. Write your list, keep it on your phone or a piece of paper you can carry and use it as a magic shield against the temptations of impulse spending. Lesson four, curses in the corridors. The shops are a dangerous place for some of us and they are filled with witchcraft we're not even aware of. Did you know that when they pump vanilla scent into shops, it can double the sales of women's clothing, that classical music can make us buy more expensive items, and that they hide those basic groceries we always need at the back of a maze-like store on purpose? This is all before smiling salespeople bamboozle us with their patter or make us feel like time wasters if we don't purchase. Online, the magic is of a different variety. You can buy in just one click, no time to think, no second thoughts allowed. They can take you from an Instagram ad or a Google search and through the checkout process before your conscious mind has a chance to kick in. The deadliest curse of all is probably sales. These enchant enchantments trick us into feeling we're saving money when we're actually spending it and create in us an overwhelming fear of missing out. The phrase limited time only is one of marketing's most powerful hexes. The counter curse. Don't go shopping when you're feeling emotionally empty. It's like going food shopping when you're feeling hungry. You end up coming back with a basket full of stuff that you crave, but that ends up making you feel like crap. Give yourself a pep talk first or wait until you know you'll be buying from a position of strength. Go through your bank statements, identify where you are being triggered to overspend and come up with a plan to bypass that place or put barriers in the way of your spending, such as taking your credit card details off of their website, avoiding the shop completely, or making a rule that you have to wait 24 hours before making any purchase. Use sales smartly. Research wh what you want, find out from the store when it might be discounted, and then pounce when it goes on sale, but never buy anything in a sale that you wouldn't want at full price. Write a list before every shopping trip, even if it's just one thing, and stick to the list. If something else catches your eye while you're out, take a picture of it or add it to a wish list if you're online. If you still want it in a week's time after you've had time to consider how it fits into your life, then go back to it. Finally, and this is a message I wish my eight-year-old self had been given, never buy something to feel like you belong in a shop or because you want to make the salesperson happy. You have every right to look around and reject everything you see. 
If you find that hard, come up with your own magic words so you can activate your resistance. Mine are, it's lovely, I kind of want it, but no, I don't need it. Next, I have an article also published in Simplify Magazine titled, How Emotionally Intelligent People Deal with Difficult People by Julia Christina Ma. We all have people in our lives who are hard to get along with, a parent who lays guilt trips, a boss who likes to micromanage, a coworker who complains all the time, a sibling who has a knack for pushing all of our buttons, an acquaintance who can be obnoxiously negative and critical, a mother-in-law who is convinced she knows what's better for our lives than we do, a grown-up child who complains about nothing ever going their way and then expects, expects us to fix all of their mostly self-inflicted problems. They all have reasons for why they behave the way they do, but the real question is, what do we do about it? How do we deal with people whose only mission in life often seems to be to make our lives more difficult? Well, friends, I've got some practical help coming up for you. But first, we're going to have to learn a strange truth. There is no such thing as a difficult person. Say what? You heard me. Managing yourself. There is no such thing as a difficult person. There are just people with whom we are not doing a great job of managing our own minds and emotions. That's right. Even if half your office can't stand them, even if all your siblings agree that they are impossible, even if they check all the boxes of what it takes to be a difficult person on some trendy online quiz or another, there's still no such thing as a difficult person. They're just people doing things that bother us. We're expecting them to act, speak, and even think in certain ways, and they are not. It doesn't mean we're not allowed to not like what they're doing, saying, or thinking, and it also doesn't mean we can't do something about it, but, and it's a big but, we own and approach it as though it's a problem for us because, well, it is. They may be rubbing up against the thorn in our side, but it is our thorn in our side. Let's put it this way. If someone is standing there with words coming out of their mouths, forming some kind of coherent sentence, and there's no one there to get irritated by it, are they being difficult? Again, our thorns. Which, believe me or not, is great news because we no longer have to try to control others. Instead, we're going to learn how to deal with people we find difficult, not by changing them, but by learning how to manage our own minds and choices. And yes, you got me. The title of this article really should have been How Emotionally Intelligent People Handle People Around Whom They Have to Be Intentional About Managing Their Own Minds and Choices, but you wouldn't have given it a second look, be honest. Try this. Here now are 11 ways emotionally intelligent people handle people around whom they have to be intentional about managing their own minds and choices. Those emotionally intelligent people, of course, include you. Number one. Become aware of and stay in charge of your own thoughts and emotions. In other words, get really good at responding rather than reacting. Take a step back and ask yourself the following questions when someone is getting under your skin. What's going on here? No, what's really going on here? What is bothering me about this? Why don't I like this? What's my problem with what's happening? Emotionally intelligent people don't fly off the handle because they take a moment to tune in to themselves instead of having a knee-jerk reaction to whatever is going on around them. You should try it. Number two, 
Don't let other people be more in charge of your mind and emotions than you are. When someone does or says something that bothers you, get aware and then decide to not get sucked in. Do you know you don't actually have to engage in any unhelpful conversation if you don't want to? Revolutionary, I know. But it's astounding how many of us let ourselves get pulled into conversations or situations we really don't want to be a part of and then blame the other person for it. Whatever someone else is going on, you don't have to make it go on for you too. Yes, sometimes we do need to speak up and set a limit or boundary if someone is being rude or disrespectful. This isn't an article on learning how to become a doormat, but more on that in a bit. Oh, and another thing, there isn't such a thing as an energy suck, just someone else's emotional state we're letting ourselves get caught up in. You are in charge of your own mind and emotions. Number three, don't feel responsible for fixing other people's problems for them. Yes, you can offer help or support if you want to, but if it's not being well-received, that is a-okay. It's not your job to fix other people's problems for them because... A, you can't, and B, you can't. So be supportive and caring to the extent you can without needing the other person to take one iota of your advice for you to feel like it was time and effort well spent. As humans, we are natural problem solvers and helpers, but some people don't want to be helped. They just want to complain, and that's fine. They can, and it's not draining if we don't think it's our job to fix it. It's the trying to fix it but not being met with resistance that often drains us. See the whole thought thing here? Number four, set limits when you need to. When someone is treating you in a way you don't like, you can speak up and request a change by expressing what you don't like about how the other person is speaking to or treating you. And then if those requests are not respected, number five, set healthy boundaries. And now we need to talk for a second about what a healthy boundary really is, because most people get this part wrong. A healthy boundary is not about changing anyone. It comes after a request for an alternate behavior is made and that request is ignored, disregarded, or disrespected. The boundary is what that person needs to do for themselves, given what the other person is or isn't willing to respect. This usually looks like disengaging from the interaction or situation. But if the boundary crossing becomes abusive, removal from the relationship altogether is likely necessary. Number six, don't take anything personally. When someone is acting irrationally, it's because they have something else going on. So don't take the irrational behavior personally because it's not personal and spoiler alert, nothing is. All poor behavior is just a person's offsetting of their own emotional chaos or unmanaged mind onto someone else. If someone has a problem with you, it's their problem. And no, this doesn't mean we say, screw you, I don't have to do anything any differently because if you get upset, it's your problem, which yes, it is. However, it's still important to be respectful, kind, and considerate of others because hey, we're all on this planet together and usually it works better if we at least try to treat each other with some decency. Number seven, get curious instead of critical. Instead of automatically labeling any person who does things you don't like as toxic or difficult or whatever, get genuinely curious about what's causing said person to be such a jerk. 
I mean, to act in ways that are bothering us. Because the truth is, people are hard to hate up close. When we take the time, when and if appropriate, to dive a little deeper, have a more meaningful conversation, get into their world, their past, their heads, it helps us see them more as people, like us, trying to make their way in the world today with everything they've got. Not everyone will be available for such deep and vulnerable conversations, but you may be surprised how many will. Number eight, turn unhelpful conversations into helpful ones. When someone is being overly negative or critical or complaining a lot, you don't have to let yourself get pulled along and can instead enlist solutions, not give solutions, enlist solutions, Instead of telling the person what to do or giving unsolicited advice that's probably going to get poo-pooed or replied to with a yeah, but, ask them what they think some possible solutions could be. As a therapist and life coach, I find this a surprisingly, not surprisingly, large part of my job. Questions. What do you think happened? Why do you think they did that? How do you think this could be handled well? What do you want to do about it? What do you think you can do about it? See how easy that is? Number nine, have conversations. Address, talk about, and deal with things that are bothering you, which is usually helpful instead of stewing, simmering, and festering, which is usually not. Yes, having tough conversations is tough. It's even in the name. But it's a lot less tough than sitting in repressed frustration, resentment, or anger for who knows how long. So rip off the Band-Aid, have the tough conversation, and move on to stewing about things that are really important, like the fact that there never was a Friends movie made. Number 10, have a support network. Not a gossipy group or ditch and bitch. Ditch the office so you can go out for coffee and bitch about everyone there. Have someone on the outside who's not connected to the person you need to vent about, a therapist, a coach, or a trusted friend. We're not here to smear names or reputations, but we all need a place to offset a bit of that frustration as we work toward being more unmesswithable. Number 11, take care of yourself. Keep that superpowered control center, i.e. your brain, well-maintained and taken care of. Do your best to sleep, exercise, and eat well. These are the basics we're taught as necessary components for both our physical and mental health, but many people secretly think that rule doesn't apply to them, don't they? Well, emotionally intelligent people don't see themselves as exempt from this one because they know that if any machine is not well taken care of, it creaks, cracks, and breaks down. So why would they treat their brains any differently? Especially if they have several people in their life they have to put more effort into managing their mind around. They need those cylinders to be well greased. To sum up, Let's bring this all together with one simple sentence. If you want to stop getting slivers in your toes, you can go out and pad the world in rubber, or you can put on a pair of shoes. I've never once thought of myself as a cobbler until this very moment, but once you take these skills to heart and use them, you'll find yourself with some well-cobbled shoes, handmade Italian leather ones, if you will. Go forth and walk wherever you'd like. Your feet are in good hands. And by feet, you know I mean your mind, right? Just in case we got a little off track there with this unnecessary complex metaphor. 
This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for Conscious Living. My name is Dawn. We invite you to please stay tuned for our next program and please have a really great week ahead. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.